So hey everybody, this is Daniel Abrahams and today on Mini Multinational we'll be talking with my guest about the rise of fintech and becoming the world's leading payments lawyer, crypto, blockchain and ICOs and transitioning from global hotshot lawyer to the entrepreneurial side of the fence. In 2015, our outspoken guest was voted number one in the Payments Power 10. Robert was awarded the prestigious title of Industry Contributor of the Year at the Global Prepaid Card Awards, an award no lawyer has been given before or since. He's been known as the leading global lawyer in the prepaid and e-money arena. And so without further ado, it's a real pleasure to welcome Robert Courtnidge, CEO of Morwand. So first off, Robert, how are you doing and where are you joining us from today? Hi, Dan. Yeah, great to speak to you. Uh, I'm joining you from a very, very sunny London. Uh, we, we, we shot 29 degrees yesterday, and I think that's uh, pretty much the warmest in, in Europe. Uh, rates are cl close second, I think, to your Dead Sea um, area. Absolutely. Um, we are in a, yeah, we're in a complete uh, sun, sun place. Uh, I'm, I'm up on the 29th floor of, of the Gherkin in my office, um, overlooking uh, Tower Bridge and the Tower of London and seeing the sunshine uh, streaming through my window at the moment so yeah that's where I am and that's that's where I'm joining you from fantastic so either after the snow in what was it late March or you know you've you guys have really turned the corner so I'm pleased to hear for the next couple of days <laughs> <laughs> absolutely um, so let why don't you tell the listeners a bit about yourself what is your personal elevator pitch well I think if you look at uh, the the payments industry and, and the legal industry and how you Put the two together. Um, my ability has always been able to turn complicated things uh, into simple things to understand for businesses. So, if you look at the way I've worked, I've always worked like an in-house lawyer, not like an external lawyer. So, I'm I'm not the lawyer you come to, and I've got all my books in front of me, and I just tell you what the law is. <clears throat> I've always looked at things from the aspect of the business. So, I like to give practical solutions to complicated legal problems that people have in our payments industry. So a very entrepreneurial lawyer, which I'm sure we'll come on to, but almost taking it back to the beginning, when did you know you wanted to become a lawyer? Can you almost point to a moment in time where, let's say, this was going to become your destiny? Yeah, bizarrely, um, it, it was when I was like age 12 and I was I remember being in a car with my gran and my mum and dad and we were driving through the countryside and I just had this epiphany that I was I was going to be a, be a lawyer and I, I completely uh, focused on that that thereafter. Um, I was in quite a, a tough comprehensive school in uh, Portsmouth on the south coast of England um, and uh, yeah we were, we were the first year we got four people to higher education I went to university uh, and, and ended up studying law. Um, so it was a, a complete change for, for my family. We'd, we'd never been in anything like that before. So presumably you, your degree was um, in law and then you went on to law school. What was your first uh, job in the industry? Yeah, well, my first job in the industry was, uh, as we have to, to have uh, as, as lawyers, they, they used to call them uh, like apprenticeships in those days, but um, they're training contracts now. Uh, and I was in a, in a, a small firm in, in Fleet Street. And bizarrely, and very unusually for anyone in the industry, I uh, kicked off in my third seat. So you have four seats, six months each. And my third seat, I went in-house to a company called Target Life Assurance Company. Um, and 
I loved it there so much that they kept me on for my fourth seat. So I did two seats in in this company, having done the property seat and the litigation seat, which you needed to do uh, to fulfil your training contract or your articles, as it was then. Um, and ended up being an in-house lawyer um, <clears throat> for Target Life Assurance Company uh, back in the well, eighty nine ninety. Um, and then they ended up being bought by uh, Lloyd's TSB Group, as it was. Um, and I, I didn't really fancy moving all the way down to Andover because I like London too much. Um, and so I ended up joining uh, Citibank uh, to become uh, an in-house lawyer, looking after Diners Club, uh, Citibank Life, which was their life assurance and pensions business, uh, and their, their retail banking business in, in London. So I, I worked alongside the general counsel there. So as you know, um, or as I'm sure, you know, me and you know, but the listeners don't know that I come from a family of lawyers, um, you know, specially specializing in, in all sorts of areas. So I understand this link to, to Citibank, but how did you decide, let's say the niche of prepaid cards, e-money, fintech, which probably, you know, wasn't as burgeoning then as it is now, was almost, you know, going to be your home in the legal in the legal ecosystem. That was a difficult one for you to say, a bit of a tongue twister. Yeah, the legal absolutely. Ecosystem. I, I thought you were starting off with illegal legal system, which is quite <laughs> different. Anyhow, um, yeah, so it was strange. I, I was always planning to be a tax lawyer. My, my A-levels were pure and applied maths as two separate subjects, and I was very much into my sciences. I did physics as well, as, as well as English. Um, and I'd always, and I'd started off on a master's at King's College, um, in uh, sort of advanced tax law. And I, I'd done the first year of that, which was two tax modules on European tax and, and corporate tax, uh, and was just going into the second year when I when I was in Citibank. And I got this sort of epiphany again with uh, working at Diners Club. And I just loved the whole of this payments ecosystem because in Diners Club, like Amex, it was a, a three-party system where effectively you were doing issuing and you were doing acquiring and you had this whole relationship thing both with the cardholders and with the merchants and so it gave me this whole area of knowledge that didn't exist before and don't forget this is 1990 1991 and so um, I changed my um, focus of my masters and in my second year I did um, internet law or, or computer, computer law, I think, as it was then, when we were talking about the uh, information superhighway. It wasn't even in the internet in those days. Um, and how this might uh, change the way law was. Um, and I, I also did European law to give me a sort of a, a wider European understanding of how, how the payments industry would work. So presumably so, going into sort of the early 2000s and, and the dot-com boom and bust, you were probably exposed to some very interesting uh, deals. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I was I was involved in the sort of the the, the startup of things like uh, LastMinute.com um, and uh, quite a few other names that that, that came and went, um, uh, and a lot of money was raised in that that dot com boom and bust uh, cycle, as you, as I'm sure you will recall. Absolutely. And uh, but yes, no, I was I was very much uh, involved in that whole space and I was watching technology and I was watching on top of technology I was watching the way in which um, finance and payments were fitting alongside that. Um, so across this period you've probably worked with um, entrepreneurs at many different stages you know the ambitious folks starting out with their PowerPoint those moving on to the more sort of 
you know, mature Series A, B, M and A scenarios. Um, of course, yeah. Across that sort of you know period, um, you know what what have you you know what sort of themes have you seen in sort of between sort of nineteen ninety to the early two thousands, early two thousands to let's say sort of more modern times. W- what trends have you seen sort of from the the, the lawyer side of the fence? Yeah, um, well, 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 certainly there's been a whole raft of input from Europe but that really didn't start until about 96 97 when there was talk of this whole new area of electronic money coming through Europe and we had the first e-money directive coming through and it was still in its early days there and it didn't really really work so in that whole period 1990 to 2000 uh, payments were like a, a, a dirty thing no, no one really was interested in them the banks didn't really want to deal with them uh, you wouldn't want to wipe it off your foot if you're working in that part of the industry. There was no interest, but I always had a, a passion for it and felt that there was was more to it. But at that stage, it really was just a technology service being provided by the banks, and there wasn't a lot of third parties coming through. And it really wasn't until the uh, first payment service directives that came through that we started to see this uh, throughput of new businesses in the in this new sort of space of electronic money and uh, payment services and i still remember uh, a, a young rich wagner coming into my office who is the guy that set up advanced payment solutions uh, which is now got called cash plus and uh, he said, I've, uh, he said, can I come for a coffee with you? I said, yeah, sure. And uh, so I've got this idea. It's, it's, it's coming across from the States. It's called prepaid. I think it's going to be really big. And I'm going, mm, very interesting. Let, 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 let's talk this through. Let's see what it is. And effectively, that, that was probably the first ever prepay program that, that 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 came out before we had this whole raft of ones to follow and that and, and in that day it was all about serving the underserved and the unbanked and the uh, sort of lowly banked people and creating a, a sort of financial inclusion solutions um, and to see how that has changed from those initial sort of pioneers in that space to the raft of uh, opportunities and the likes of Monzo and Revolut today is 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 a massive journey and it is quite interesting to to look look back at where Rich Wagner has gone in this same time um and he is now um going to be a bank by the end of this year he will have his full banking license from the Bank of England um and he'll have gone full circle providing business banking services rather than providing um banking to the unserved and underserved so there has been a very sort of a steady growth between 1990 and 2000, 2000 to 2018. Well, 2000 to 2010, it started moving forward. 2010 to 2018, there has been an explosion, and it is the the go-to space in in uh, in the whole fintech area. And I guess and, what's really interesting for you as a lawyer, because um, presumably entrepreneurs come to you at an early stage, and and the top thing in their mind is you know is not really necessarily falling in love with the solution it's falling in love with the real problem that they want to solve in the world but you know at at a base level if you're building a a social network call it facebook instagram the complexities involved from a regulatory perspective are are nowhere near as um you know multifaceted as let's say the problems um you know that a fintech entrepreneur or a payments entrepreneur wants to 
um, you know, has to overcome and tackle when really sort of looking to to, to start out and, and, and grow a significant company. So that must be very interesting from, you know, from the entrepreneurial lawyer hat to really, you know, almost temper sometimes the expectations, you know, from an entrepreneur about what they can and can't achieve because um, they are operating fundamentally in a very complicated landscape. And that, that that's as opposed exactly to other true. verticals, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it, and it is very interesting because I, I mean, it's it's unbelievable that over that period of probably two thousand and five onwards, that that sort of era where you'd had the very first phase coming in two thousand one to two thousand and five, which were very much sort of pioneers, but then you had the sort of growth phase where it was more mainstream. And I literally, at least two, three times a month, I'd have new entrepreneurs coming in with a new business idea <coughs> in the fintech space. And it is, uh, it's, it's amazing because they'd come in and no two would have the same idea. Uh, and they'd all come in with these new brilliant ways of doing it. And yes, a lot of them didn't succeed. A lot of the products that they'd come up with, people didn't need. I mean, this That's is what I was always ask. the problem, would you, isn't it? Would you see a lot of churn along the way based on, you know, the solution being presented to you is probably so um, potentially pioneering, but also complex that the project really didn't get underway before, you know, it even sort of failed, so to speak? Well, in, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, I was dealing with a company that did something called, it was called Charge It Dial, and it was just so far ahead of its time, and, and it did fail in the end. But it was, a, it was a brilliant concept, which was just basically putting billing onto your, your, your normal phone bill, and they would put single drop charges through so you could buy things like refrigerators or any, any goods or services, because there wasn't really much online then, it was more telesales and things like that because we we weren't really in the internet that we are today but that was so far ahead of its time that, that the consumers couldn't get it and if you think it's probably nearly 20 years on from that that we're now very very used to using your mobile phone to make payments with um yeah the the, the problem is not the the solutions that these people are coming up with it's consumer uptake I mean, for so many years, the, the leading way of making mobile payments was using premium rate texting. That, that was how all the TV shows worked and all the game things that you could have. If you wanted to vote on something, and, I, and, it, and it's still happening today. And that, that is incredible because it's like the lowest form, the lowest common denominator. But it could work on any phone anywhere. And things like... Um, and Pesa in Kenya were, were founded on this just sort of movement of, of, of payment by text. Um, but it actually took the, 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 the populace, the, the people liked it and hooked onto it, even though it wasn't the most secure, even though it wasn't the best, it, and it certainly wasn't very um, uh, frictionless. It worked and people just adopted it. Uh, and it's taken a long time to to move to the more sophisticated ways of doing online payments, and people are now much more used to using their electronic wallets and their mobile wallets. But you you forget that that is very very recent in our history. It's, this this stuff has been growing for many years, but the adoption is the thing that's taken the time. And do you think when fintech entrepreneurs are building out their business plan, their projections, and and, and clearly you know with one eye on the balance sheet? they, let's say, underestimate, um, you know, unanticipated costs, whether it be legal, regulatory, and so on and so forth. And that, um, you know, with a little bit more sort of planning and, and foresight, you know, 
costs that aren't necessarily budgeted in, um, you know, in the sort of complexity of what they're looking to build, um, you know, how can fintech entrepreneurs sort of protect against these types of, of things going forward? Um, because I've spoken to a number of entrepreneurs that, that you know, when, they, when they're sort of assessing their balance sheet, there are a lot of, you know, complicated things that will come up that will require whether it's legal, whether it's legal services or others, you know, they are just not factoring in that, you know, that the costs. Yeah, no, 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 it's true. I mean, and, and I'm, I forever see in a lot of the, the startups I, I, I've worked with over the years, the, the question of runway, how, how long is your runway is the, the one thing that comes up in all these board meetings. Where are we on that runway? What, how are we going to extend the runway? And, um, and yes, I think I think I think it is difficult uh, to really predict some of those costs that are going to come up because there are always things going to come out of the left field, and it's the question is: Are those things that are coming from the left field things you could have factored in at, at day one into a sort of a, a margin on on your your funding, or is it just sort of so so large that it needs another round of funding itself? So you do tend to find a lot of the fintechs go through a lot of rounds of funding, and they're not always hitting their their, their targets, and and their their runways are running out very short by the time they're getting their next lot of funding in, and that then puts more pressure on the the business to to, to and and certainly the people that set it up to to give up more of their equity because. They're, they've got such leverage against them because they haven't managed to properly manage their costs throughout that period. And it's, 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 a, it's always a difficult one. And I think there's almost a psychology from a fintech entrepreneur that, you know, paying a compliance expert, paying a lawyer, you know, it's not really playing on the offense. It's almost playing on the defense versus the more sexy ways of spending money, such as client acquisition, product, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, that's definitely the the mindset when I kind when I'm speaking to other fintech entrepreneurs, it's a case of, oh, you know, I didn't really factor in or, you know, necessarily see that, you know, engaging with these lawyers, compliance experts, et cetera, et cetera, are fundamentally, um, you know, offensive ways of, of spending money that, you know, either I've bootstrapped or someone else has entrusted me with. Um, and so with, you know, going back to... I mean, but you say that, but I mean, you look at someone like Bill, Bill Gates started this whole thing. That, so the, the, the way in which traditionally companies had sort of taken over markets was by getting monopolies and getting, and traditionally state-run monopolies were the, the, were the way to, to make a lot of money. And it, it was very interesting that, that Bill Gates coming from a, from a legal background, his family, but not a qualified lawyer himself, came up with this whole licensing concept in software. Uh, he was the guy that came up with shrink wrap licensing, and he was the guy that put all these clauses in his contracts that enabled him to basically own bits of this software that were going to be distributed globally. And it was those legal contracts that he fought really hard for in, in some of the early days that eventually got him to where he is today. That's where value um, was created. The saying. value was in the IP. Yeah and creating a monopoly around IP, because you can't create normal monopolies, but if you have developed a particular type of software or a particular product that you can patent, Bill Gates quickly realized that owning that was the equivalent of having a monopoly. And you look, I mean, what is there? There's, there's pretty much Microsoft or Apple on the on the tech side, and, uh, and the two of them have, have, have pretty much uh, a duopoly there.
So then how does an early stage, but then you, it comes to the chicken and egg problem. How does an early stage fintech entrepreneur that doesn't have a massive balance sheet seek out the services of um, a Robert Courtnage, a, a big hotshot lawyer at Saylands, Lock Lord, could be any you know equivalent of yourself yeah, yeah. at a big law firm, whereby they want to you know engage with you for many, many hours to develop that competitive advantage, but they simply don't have the funds. And again, I think a lot of law firms, including mine, we, we were always happy to look at ways in which we can sort of support those sort of businesses by maybe giving them sort of a, a low cost upfront fees with, with monthly amounts that they would pay uh, and then basically forward pushing some of those fees so that once they got their their funding that they they were able to afford it so that probably meant that fits in neatly with your entrepreneurialism where effectively what you're saying is we'll take on this client as a a loss leader or whatever the word is on the basis that you really back them and believe that they will be the next potential billion dollar company and 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 you'll learn handsomely not in the short short term but if you take a slightly long-term approach um, you know, that's exactly. Where you'll make you, your... you, you, you do have to take a long-term approach, and you do you do have to look at these businesses and say, are are these businesses going to make it, or are they just dreamers? Um, I think we we went through the dot com boom, dot com boom in 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 the sort of nineties. In the 2000s, we, we started seeing some of these uh, fintech companies coming through. Um, but again, we had a second wave when the banking crisis hit. Uh, that hit a lot of these fintech businesses as well in the sort of late, late 26, 2006, 2007 time. Um, and, and now we're, we're, we're seeing yet another phase, I think you can safely say, which is the whole ICO, the initial coin offering phase where we're having uh, new fundraisings coming through on, on this, this latest, uh, uh, is it a bubble or is it, is it, is it real uh, question? And I don't think everything is a bubble. So I think so, that, yeah, so, sorry. Yeah, so I, I was, we're going to come on to fintech, crypto and ICOs, but just on this point, um, and hopefully on mini multinational, there's going to be, potentially some entrepreneurial aspiring lawyers out there and um, you know what advice would you give to them on this I guess critical point of where you draw the line between I, I believe in this company versus I've got to show to my other partners and um, colleagues within the firm that, that basically um, you know this is why I'm not billing and this is where I will start billing uh, and where's almost the line drawn from the perspective of I'm happy to to give out free advice between you know towards you know, this is where we're really going to start making money, and, and the meter is effectively on. Yeah, and I, and again, it is very it is difficult, and I I had to take the step uh, by leaving being an, an equity partner at Osborne Clark, um, and took a big step of basically becoming a consultant so that I could start taking on non-exec roles, and and that that's a that's a that takes a big whack out of your your income. But it it shows where your passion is and what you want to do. So that it was, that was back um, in two thousand and six that uh, I, I I took that initial move um, across. And I, I think it's it's important to make that distinction as a, as a lawyer. I'd, I've always been on the entrepreneurial side of it, but you have to have a passion for what you want to do. Uh, it's a passion that gets you out of bed in the morning that wants you to be in the office and, and do stuff. 
and I've had this whole passion for this whole payments area. And as I say, it, it's grown over the years, and that, that's what buys other people in. That's why people like working with you, and that's why you get stuff. You you get stuff that other people don't see because you're really passionate about it, and you're 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 always looking for the next solutions. You're not looking for the the issues that are out there. What is it they um, say? If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And yeah, maybe I've never worked a day in my life. I think that's what some of my <laughs> colleagues and friends would say. <laughs> and so in the last, you know, we'll come on to you now being a, a CEO of a fintech company. But in the last, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, few years you've worked at, uh, as a very senior lawyer at Saylands and Lock Lord, huge multi-office mm-hmm. worldwide law firms. What was the dynamic working there? What aspects of working for a huge firm did you enjoy and maybe on the other side did you not enjoy so much i, th- I think i think there are uh, the, the, you you get benefits from giant law firms and you and you get um problems the the benefits of very much having a a global network being able to tap into people that you know are going to be able to help your clients out and especially where payments is a, a borderless solution i mean there there, there are no payments borders what there are are legal and regulatory borders and scheme borders where either the the schemes of visa mastercard uh, china union pay jcb say these are your territories and this is what you're allowed uh, and you have central banks and governments saying this is our country you can only do stuff within our country and this is our laws and if you move to another country you've got to watch out for what their laws are so you have as i say both the the states and you have the schemes telling you these are the territories you're allowed in but you have this thing called the internet and technology and payments that don't understand that there are any borders and uh, having a, a a multinational law firm with offices everywhere in the world gives you the opportunity to try and simplify some of those difficulties in working across multiple borders uh, with your clients because you can pick up the law the phone to your lawyer in in singapore your lawyer in the uh, united states your lawyer in brazil your lawyer in africa and say look got client he's he's got some customers out there are there anything we need is there anything we need to look out for and having that ability is is, is quite unique the the downside is that you don't always have the lawyers you want in those countries um, so you you may have the worst payments lawyer in france that you have to work with just because he's in the team and he doesn't even want to work with you because he hates you um <laughs> so presumably a lot of politics <laughs> so you get politics and you yeah. go no no you've got to use a lawyer from our firm and I'm going, no i'm not going to use a lawyer from our firm because he's rubbish i want to use this lawyer that i've worked <laughs> with before and so you get those those, those are the other issues and then you have this whole thing of conflicts uh the bigger the law firm the more clients they act for the more likely it is that you're not going to be able to act for your new entrepreneur client because he's contracting with clients with bigger parties which is normally the way you get get it but those bigger parties are already clients of the firm so it it restrains you from being able to act for everyone you want to act for because every time you want to act for someone you put it into the uh, to the conflicts check, and it comes up. Sorry, conflict. You can't act. And so, yeah. Downs, and so, what were some of these burdens of big firms? Were some of these burdens then? I mean, we almost discussed the defining moment that wanted to that that you know effectively uh, provoked you to becoming a lawyer. In terms mm-hmm. of you know where you are now as CEO of Morewand, um, as I understand, you're not a, a practicing partner at a 
at a law firm. You, you've, no. you've joined the entrepreneurial side of the fence. So what was almost that defining moment or day or well, hour? I, I, or... I think once a lawyer, always a lawyer. That's, that's, that's never going to change. Um, but I think uh, after 29 years uh, as a payments lawyer, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a long time. If you, It's 31 if you include the training. And I, I was ready for a new challenge. Um, people th say things get too easy. I don't know about easy is not the word, but you, you get into a groove, don't you? And, and we as human beings, if we want to live and continue to live, we need to challenge ourselves and to come into effectively a sort of mature startup, as it were, uh, and trying to redefine that business in the marketplace and carve a new niche and and that's certainly what i'm trying to do with Mond is is something that is very exciting and so I've, i mean i've had my feet under the desk only only three months so far uh and yeah every day is new challenges new excitement new opportunities and, after uh, and that's great after so many years as a lawyer what's the single biggest thing that frightens you about this switch I think it's uh, it's it's working. I don't, I, there is not the same um, mental challenge from a sort of uh, big, difficult um, abilities to create complex solutions in a simple format. What you have in a business is lots and lots of operational challenges on a daily basis that you have to deal with. Whereas it, as, as a lawyer, you can sit back and think ethereally about, oh, well, if we move this and this, this is how we can change things. Whereas in a, in a business, it's like we've got 25 things that have to be done this morning, prioritize them, get them done, move on. And it's that difference of they may the not pace, be as mentally right? challenging. It's the pace, exactly. and it's and it's it's and it's also the frustration of dealing with third parties. That again, as a lawyer, you, you you a problem comes to you, and you're dealing with that problem for that client. And you may have twenty five clients, or with twenty five different problems to deal with. But each time, what you're doing is solving a problem. Here, you're dealing with a lot of operational things, and you're working with third parties. And if that third party hasn't closed off this particular item you need, this contract or this permissions or this regulatory solution, you can't move forward on anything else. And so it's that frustration as well of, of dealing with parties that you, means you can't get on with your job because my job is not sort of sitting back and creating a solution. It's, it's basically looking at all the steps that need to be taken in order to get to an operational solution for my new customers. Very interesting. Um, and it, it's, 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 it's a fun new challenge, but it, it is a different challenge and it's, uh, it's exciting. Well, we wish you the, uh, the best of luck, Robert. So segueing into crypto, blockchain mm -hmm. and ICOs, I understand you're an enthusiast. Um, can you share some words to our listeners around your involvement in this uh, explosive, fast growing, very interesting industry? So yeah, I've, I've been looking at this space uh, since sort of about 2008, 2009 time when uh, when DLT was distributed ledger technology was still sort of in in its infancy, and um, it was always said to be the the sort of the, the black hole where all the criminals hang out. Um, but I think over time, I think everyone's learned that it's not really that because it's, it's probably one of the most transparent 
solutions that could ever exist and that every transaction not only is it is it, is it logged on this immutable ledger across multiple nodes uh, and w within a, a few minutes or probably within half an hour on on the bitcoin blockchain you're never going to be able to change anything that's gone through that you you, you can you can reverse it in going forward, but you, but everyone will see the reverse. So it's one of the most transparent um, systems of, of of ledger keeping that that could ever exist, and and that's why it has so many many uses that are, are being picked up on. I guess um, the standard cliche that I hear a lot in the in the community is that crypto as a currency is likely to be useless with no let's say intrinsic value, but the underlying blockchain technology. Um, has such tremendous potential in terms of practical examples of um you know deployments of blockchain technology well, in the mainstream at, what are you yeah, yeah. What, what what have you been seeing that really excites you well if you, if you look at what's going on in the ico world that that pretty much shows you a lot of the the developing technologies that are coming through in this space so I have a, a friend of mine that set up a new gaming chip. I think it's chip.io or something. And that gaming chip has built in two things. It's built in ID, which is very, very important, as we know. But it's also built in gambling awareness. So you, you set how, uh, how much you want to be able to lose. And it's got like a 48-hour timer on it. So if you're in the middle of betting and you hit your limit, you can't just go in and change the limit. You've got to wait 48 hours to change the limit. And that is a gambling aware solution because it means that you're not going to be tempted to bet more than you can afford if you've set the limits properly at the beginning. And then by the time you've cooled down from the heat of the moment, like two days later, you can then decide whether you really wanted to change that limit. And I, so I think these sort of solutions are, are, are stuff that is going to be useful in the marketplace. And I can see coins or tokens coming in to many different sectors. And you, you, you can call them currencies if you like, or you can call them tokens. But at the end of the day, if they work and they have a, a, a real intrinsic solution to that vertical, then there's, there's no reason why those currencies won't work. And they are, they are borderless. And that, that's one of the reasons why some of the central banks are not, not keen on them, because it means that money or sorry value because you can't call it money value can move in and out of countries even if there are limits on moving real monies in and out of those countries because they go via the internet they go on dlt and there's no real sort of uh, walls around them there, there are no borders on a, on a distributed ledger so technology we've got listeners um who are entrepreneurs typically across many many different verticals um most of them understand the traditional and typical way of raising money, whether it be through angel investors, friends and family, um, venture capital. Not, I wouldn't say all of our listeners would be very familiar of what an ICO is. So perhaps almost, um, you know, ICOs for dummies. Can you just give our listeners a, a, just a brief overview of um, what is yeah, an ICO? Because sure. clearly we've been seeing stories in the press of, of companies raising millions in seconds. But if you can almost break down in simple terms, A, what an ICO is and B, the types of businesses that, that 
are a fit for an ICO, I think that could be very, very valuable to our listeners. Yeah. So, so an ICO is an initial coin offering, and and it's basically creating a new coin or a new token that people can buy into. So, creating the next Bitcoin. And if you think for the first ten years, there were probably less than thirty cryptocurrencies available if you went online to look for them, uh, and now there are nearly two thousand. That gives you an idea of how many ICOs have taken place over the last couple of years to to raise that total up. Um, now, they're not all going to succeed, and I certainly wouldn't recommend investing in them willy-nilly. But a lot of them are now being looked at as, as a sort of crowdfunding solutions. So if you want to crowdfund something, you can go in and you can go out and, and raise money through a number of these crowdfunding platforms, or you could do an ICO. And all an ICO is, is it basically you open a wallet up and allow people to transfer their cryptocurrencies into that wallet of the types that you've agreed, whether it's Ethereum, whether it's uh, Bitcoin, whether it's Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin. And they can put money, oh, sorry, they can put the cryptocurrency into that wallet, which is your wallet. And in return for it, they're granted your new cryptocurrency or your new token or coin that, that you've created uh, at the value you let them come in at. And there's typically discount rates to come in at the initial uh, uh, pre-initial funding uh, all the way through to the ICO where it's set out and if you go onto these ICO sites you'll see the timers clock tick down until the till the launch uh, and then at the launch those coins then uh, go into the marketplace and then they can be freely exchanged. Now whilst at launch they will have a set price in the same way as in an IPO would have a, a, a set price that you would uh, launch your stock at, um, once they're in the marketplace the value will be based on what the market determines they're worth at and that And how point. relevant is the link between how the underlying business is performing that they raise money for as an ICO with um, the value of the coin that is, or the newly created coin that's being freely traded on the exchanges. Well, that, that's the point. I think. I think that the, the the there there is no real link, and cer certainly if you're if you're going down the the traditional route of utility token, which is what most people want to do because it's not regulated, um, a utility token cannot be linked to any physical asset. Otherwise, it would be a security and therefore be regulated. So that's why we tend to find that these things are utility tokens and they have absolutely no in intrinsic value. What they do is they do have a use, which is a, a use case where they can be used for various different uh, things depending on the product that they're behind. So it may be that their use case is that, that you can use them to buy rice. They might be the ultimate token for buying gold. Um, so they might might be enable you to buy things you couldn't otherwise buy. They, they may enable you to buy airtime or buy access to a conference. There's a conference coming up I'm speaking at in Belgrade, which is going to have the first ever live ICO at the conference, and they're going to have a countdown to it, and people buying tickets for the conference are getting tokens, and you can do things to earn tokens, but they're not taking money for the tokens directly. quite dramatic won't it and it's, it's quite fun <laughs> yeah uh, and i and i, and I uh, my, my own view is that distributed ledger 
technology and, and this whole tokenization piece is probably where, where, the, where the future is going for holding assets, but there needs to be some regulation around it. We'll, we've seen in Gibraltar, they've set up a, a, a blockchain um, equivalent to the stock exchange. So they've got a block exchange. Um, we've seen developments in Malta where they're looking to create uh, a means to regulate ICOs. They've, they've already opened up uh, a means to have regulated funds that, that hold uh, cryptocurrencies in them. Uh, we've seen Zug in Switzerland being a hub for um, this new uh, ICO type products and they're looking at creating new laws to w welcome people in that want to do ICOs. Um, on the opposite to that, we've seen the US uh, being clamping down on some of these ICOs on the grounds that they've seen them as almost Ponzi schemes in some respects, where people have come up with a white paper, they've raised all this money, and effectively they've created nothing, and the coins have flopped. Um, and on that point specifically, yeah. so on that point specifically, we've obviously seen the market cap of cryptocurrencies rise and fall. Um, what's your take on digital currency trading? We've seen a big over-the-counter market emerge. Um, I saw a very interesting stat that you know 25% of wealth manager clients, um, you know, are asking their wealth managers around digital currency investing, and of which 25% are are ready to buy. And so, what would be your take around sort of you know that high net worth hedge fund wealth manager community? whose, let's say, clients are asking them, should I put, you know, there's a traditional wealth allocation of X percent in, in bonds, X percent in stocks, um, but they're curious about putting a small percentage of, of wealth allocation into crypto, whether that's, you know, the giants like Bitcoin and, and, and other more well-known tokens. What would be your sort of take around the, the future of digital currency trading and, and what would you be saying to these sort of high net worths, ultra high net worths? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think if you if you only put into it what you're willing to lose, um, it is gambling still in, in, in my view. Um, if you want to gamble on binary or on FX or on a roulette wheel, feel free to gamble on, on cryptocurrencies. I, 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 I don't know whether they are or not, are not sustainable in the long term. Certainly as a transfer of value, I think in the long term transfers of value will come through. But whether or not the, the, the market leaders today of Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum are, are still going to be there, um, who knows? So I, you I would wouldn't even so. be able to hazard a prediction on the value of Bitcoin in even, let's say, 24 months time? No, I would never, never risk that. Uh, no. It could be zero or it could be $100,000 um, or did somewhere you, in did between. Did you dabble yourself in digital currency investing from the perspective of you were very aware of the uh, the ecosystem that was emerging around? Of course, around of course you know. but uh, I, I think being uh, naturally cautious or be an entrepreneur in some ways, um, Stroke I was always the person that was going to invest in the shovels, not the uh, the, the gold. So, um, yeah, uh, my investment would always be in the, the Bitcoin exchanges and the technology around the side rather than the actual currencies, which are highly volatile and for gamblers rather than for investors, I think. Fantastic. So just moving towards the end of the interview, um, would love to hear more about your current role, which is CEO of Morewand. 
like mm-hmm. the magic wand. Um, what, what, what is it? Um, what type of fintech entrepreneurs listening to this should reach out to you? Um, who do you want to hear from? So, yeah, so I, I've sort of uh, come into this space and I, I've watched eMoney all the way through the years and PSD2 that came into force on the 13th of January this year um, has really opened the doors, I think, for the fintech industry in Europe, at least, to to sort of spread its wings and lots of opportunities. Um, but within that, I, I I I was looking at what is the sort of the little kernel that that, that can 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 sort of create value to the market and there are lots of people out there creating the technology coming up with new solutions but as i think you said at the beginning the 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 legal bit and compliance bit is bits that the these entrepreneurs are not really into um on the other hand i am into that and i i totally get it i work with the regulators around the world i work with the schemes a lot uh, i give workshops i talk about how the law and how the regulation fits with the products so it seemed to me that there was a, a niche in there to create this regulated entity that effectively does that bit for businesses that want to go out and issue cards or acquire transactions. So it's a very, very niche play. It's basically bin sponsorship, but at a very niche level. So my organization uh, is currently a full member of Visa and MasterCard and uh, is uh, very close to getting China Union pay on board as well. Um, And we have those memberships that enable us to work with companies to enable them to issue products on those different schemes on their rails so you can issue those type of cards and you can acquire transactions if you are a a merchant online merchant uh, or a retail merchant and uh, you need to accept payments from people off using those different schemes then you can use our license to enable you to do that we also have uh, electronic money license in the uk which covers all the uh, payment services as well except the new ones of payment initiation services and account information services which require a specific uh, separate license Uh, but we can do all of those regulated activities as well and we're fully reapproved now by the fca uh, on their reapproval process after psd2 Um, and so we're a nice neat niche regulated entity that can enable third-party fintechs to come and use us and our, our our regulated and our scheme membership to issue products into the marketplace so you almost without allow these, to worry about that you piece. almost exactly so you almost allow these companies to focus on the more sexy side of building the great product building the great exactly. user experience going out and acquiring clients um and almost alleviating the headache cost and time it takes to to almost get set up and we can give them their license. We can let them use our licenses and we can monitor and make sure that they are complying with both the regulation and the scheme rules. And for the schemes and the regulators, that makes it easier for them too. They don't want to have members or have uh, regulated entities in the tens of thousands. They're quite happy to have a few hundred or a couple of thousand. Um, and so if we can manage that on their behalf, um, we actually provide a perfect conduit and as i say having my legal and regulatory background behind that gives both the regulators and the schemes a lot of trust in what we're doing fantastic and in terms of the composition of the team um 
you kindly introduced me to your uh, your colleague Dana, who I met in uh, in Tel Aviv. Where mm-hmm. are you guys beyond London geographically located? And well, we 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 we're as a kind of a small group of companies. So we 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 have a, uh, some technology people based in Lithuania. We have some product designers based in Denmark. Uh, we we have a compliance team based in Moldova, and we have our head office based in London. And we're 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 looking at other places to to set up as well. And as I said, the on on in relation to my team, it's 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 very much creating a, a, a lean solution because if you think what we're doing, our our aim is to keep up with the law, the regulation, the schemes, um, make sure we comply with that. And so my team is very much about onboarding and operationally working with the entrepreneurs, the fintechs out there, to get them licensed through us. Uh, and on the other side, to have compliance teams uh, working with our clients to make sure what they're doing is 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 fully compliant with law and regulation and schemes. So it's quite a, a niche team. We, we I, I will bring on salespeople in time, but we're we're selling a very niche proposition, uh, and it is quite a lean proposition. And we're trying to keep it simple as well. So on on the pricing side, I've come up with probably the simplest pricing that's <laughs> ever existed in bin sponsorship. Uh, it could be that I'm just very simple and I, I can't cope with anything more complex than that. There's nothing but, wrong with uh, keeping it stupid simple. <laughs> so thank that. you. <laughs> and the way the business has grown has been, as I understand, organic, very much bootstrapped, yes, exactly. based on free cash flow. Is there plans in the next 12, 24 months to scale through outside funding or are you looking to, to carry on no, building I don't, I don't, quite I don't uniquely really a very organic, fast-growing business which, uh, which isn't I, I, commonplace in the fintech world? I think world. My, my business within, within the group, which is very much this scheme and regulatory piece, uh, it can grow very easily organically because effectively what you're doing is bringing on the third parties that need to have the growth. They're the ones we're not selling to... The, end consumers we we are providing a business to business service to existing regulated entities whether they be banks whether they're e-money issuers whether they're payment institutions or whether they need our license for that as well but we're not going direct to consumers so our our focus is 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 very niche and on a b2b front we know exactly what we need to provide those services out fantastic as i also understand i'm speaking to a fellow podcaster um, so you are please, indeed. Please do give a plug to, as I understand, the name of the podcast is Fintech, Fintech Unplugged. Unplugged. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's myself and uh, Suresh Vajani from uh, GPS. And we're, we're just trying to take the the sort of that whole area of things that people don't want to talk about and don't want to explain about and just give people the answers they want. And so we're, we're, we're addressing things like cryptocurrencies in the industry. We're, we're addressing things like how the scheme rules are working. We're addressing the topics that other people don't want to talk about and talking about them in an open way. Um, in no way do our views on that reflect our company's views. There are very much personal views, and that's the whole point. Um, but we try to do it in a light-hearted uh, but at the same time, very uh, technology, technologically and using our experience to give really good answers to people on some questions that people really want to know the answers, but then ask. And the format is a chat between the two of you, or do you bring in outside guests on a 
Presumably it the started off the weekly. first series was was very much just chats between me and Suresh on some of these topics and people were sending in topics to our bin of confusion um, <laughs> but then we found that people wanted to hear the views of other people and so we've had a couple of interviews so we had a specialist on uh, on the general data protection regulation that's coming in we spoke to them uh, we had a chat with uh, Tony Craddock from the EPA to get his his views on some some stuff he might not normally want to say in the open when he's uh, representing the EPA but things they're happy to say in, in private to us uh, and our many uh, listeners so it, it's it's been a it's been a fun journey and and the idea is just to keep it light fun but answering the questions people really want to know the answers to fantastic I mean I'm super bullish on on voice and podcasting by the sounds of it you are too um, so just to cap you know just to end the uh, this interview, what we normally do is this quick fire round where I ask you a bunch of, of questions and you hopefully provide some very brief answers. So to kick off, is there a must read book for entrepreneurs or, or, or SMB fintech, you know, business owners or business owners in other verticals that you would recommend that you've picked up and, and, and read on your Sun Lounge? Certainly in the, in the sort of the, the future of fintech and where it's going, I, I really do like Chris Skinner's books. He, he, he writes in a really easy way. Um, Value Web was his previous book. He's just launched another one. I can't remember the name of it, and I'm going to be getting that shortly. But, but I enjoy reading the sort of cyborg way the future is, is, is going and how we're going to uh, sort of live in times of the future where, with smart cities and things like that. I, I, I like that whole sci-fi becoming reality, uh, and I think that's, that's where we're headed. So I, so I enjoy that sort of read. I'm uh, enjoy, enjoying reading a, a lot of stuff in that space. Next up, um, best place to consume news, whether it's fintech or tech at large? Is it scrolling through your Twitter feed or LinkedIn news feed? I, yeah, well, I, I, I do still like my, my, my Twitter feed, to be honest, um, just because it's quick and easy and, and stuff comes out there before it comes anywhere else. Um, certainly you get stuff pushed through your, your, your emails on your sort of Finextra and things like that, which is always useful. Um, but flagging, I, I, I think, yeah, Twitter and, and LinkedIn, but more Twitter probably where I just see something and then, then have a, a deeper dive on the internet on stuff. Um, Equally, I'm, I'm obviously in a lot of the, the, the sort of legal forums and stuff like that and things like the Emerging Payments Association, things like the Prepay International Forum that I uh, founded many years ago. Those organizations are good for updates in what's going on in the industry and being able to be at the, the forefront of, of change. Best life hack for work-life balance? Um, yeah, my 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 my, my favourite thing for work life balance is unless it, anything gets in the way with it, every Friday night is date night, um, and Friday night till Monday morning should be family. If you can block that off somehow in your life and do it even sixty or fifty percent of the time, it will rejuvenate you. Even if you do some work during that time as well, which you all, we all do as entrepreneurs, it will just give you that 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 connection and i think we all need connection with uh, the special people in our lives so and it sounds you need like to make you, uh, time for that connection sounds like you observe shabbat like me then <laughs> exactly every friday night i'm at the theater i hit about 40 to 50 theater productions a year and yeah that's it you have to do that shabbat i think 
There's a reason why religions have this. Well, I'm at the synagogue and you're probably at the theatre, so yes. Um, or not so much in recent times at the synagogue, which I need to improve my game on. And lastly, favourite productivity tool? Favourite productivity tool? I, I, I think that's um, uh, my, my, my cappuccinos, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Walking out of the office, going to a coffee bar, picking up a cappuccino and coming back to the office. That, You're a different that man. Break, <laughs> that break, the, the, the caffeine rush. Uh, yeah, take regular breaks, come back refreshed and, and hit the ground running. Good stuff. Well, thank you, Robert, so much. It's been such a pleasure. I think this is a must listen for anyone from an entrepreneurial fintech um, founder to even an entrepreneurial lawyer. Uh, that wants to move over and become an entrepreneur or, or, or even pick up some advice around sort of, you know, client acquisition. So I think it's been such a treat. Uh, lastly, if anyone wants to get in contact with you, is it via Twitter, email? What's the best way? Uh, Twitter or LinkedIn messaging is is always good. Uh, I mean, I'm easy to find. I'm, I'm at prepaid Robert on Twitter, which is very easy. Um, you can easily find my name because there's not many courtnages on the uh, <laughs> on LinkedIn. So I think you'll you'll easily find me on on most media. I'll uh, probably so find a colourful shirt as well that you're. Uh... I the other yeah the other one thing in my life that keeps me happy and I've got a new one on today which you can't see but it's navy blue with pink flowers all over it uh, is is just giving that brightness. I'm in a, in a pale blue uh, sort of linen suit today, blue shoes and a pink and navy. Uh, shirt and uh, with a yellow yellow strap on my watch I've always glasses. said Robert I've always said it gives you that edge when you're you know when you're there at a networking event and everyone almost merges into one or another I think your attire definitely uh, you know stands out and presumably uh, you know there's some been some good biz dev uh, you know opportunities all, that have come it's out it's of... always worked yeah <laughs> have, have, always have your image whatever it is and, and and live the dream live the life live every moment your personal brand well thank you very much robert as i said it's My been pleasure. such a pleasure and uh, yes hopefully um we'll see you all next time on mini multinational thank you <laughs>